guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> Me too. Wow. <laughs> That's really great that we're both doing great and we didn't talk about anything before. <laughs> now it yeah. sounds like we're doing great. <laughs> we are. Um, we're doing great. We're good. We're, we're happy to be here and yeah, in our homes. We're happy to be here. I, this is my favorite place in the world. I love my house. <laughs> Me too. You know, there's no place I'd rather be than home. So this is, this is good. I am yeah. going to be thankful. I'll be thankful. There you go. <laughs> so I don't think we have anything to talk about. Really, nothing's happening. I mean, a lot's happening, but we're not saying anything. <laughs> well, things that need to be announced are not happening right now. True. No one's announcing anything new. So we are also not announcing anything new. And we're going to get really right into the episode this week. This is another case that was researched for us by Haley Gray. And she always does such a great job. I am not really sure where she found this one. I don't know if this was one that you suggested, Melissa. She was researching another case for someone else and came across this and was like, does this look interesting? And I was very, very excited. And it does look yeah. interesting. There's so much information. It <laughs> yeah, it's a really, really interesting story. So every once in a while, as you guys know, we sometimes do an episode where we talk about a crime that was not a murder. And that's what we're bringing to you this week. A hard to believe kidnapping story that's a wild ride from start to finish. The events of this week's story are so bizarre and seem so unbelievable that they could only be thought of as a movie plot. And there actually is a movie based on these events that came out in 2017 called All the Money in the World with the great Marky Mark. But before that great film could be made, the real life story of John Paul Getty III had to happen. So before we get into the heart of the story, we need to give a little background on the family involved. These people are kind of a big deal, although I really did not know who they were at all. And I asked Melissa and she said she only knew of them. So maybe those of you listening won't know much either. And then I don't <laughs> have to look like I just didn't know anything by myself. I'll join you. I, I had only heard of it. And so I, too, knew nothing. We know nothing. Here you go. <laughs> well, that's like par for the course. So, you know. There you go. <laughs> so things are a little confusing in this story because everybody has the same name, which is John Paul Getty. And there is John Paul Getty II and John Paul Getty III. So the second and third John Pauls both went by just Paul. So I decided for this episode, since we mention all three of these people quite a bit, that I am going to give everybody a different name. So John Paul I is going to be known as Grandpa Getty. And John Paul II, who is basically the junior, we're going to call him junior. And then the main subject of our episode this week is Jean Paul III. And we're just going to call him Paul. So hopefully that will keep things less confusing. I tried to write it in a way that made sense. But it is hard when you have three people that have the exact same name in a story. Right. So in 1957, Grandpa Getty was an oil tycoon and the richest man in America. In 1966, he was the wealthiest private citizen with a net worth of $1.2 billion. And according to one inflation calculator I tried, this would be like the equivalent of over $9.5 billion in today's money. And it's really just like the craziest amount. Like even when I was typing it into the calculator to see what it was, I was like, this is going to be a lot. This is like crazy. <laughs> this it's is too many. So much money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just so much money. I can't even really comprehend like that amount or having one person having that amount of money. Right. 
So for 17 years, Grandpa Getty lived in the Sutton Place Castle in the UK, which was also Henry VIII's summer castle way back in the day. This castle had a room called the Red Room, where Henry VIII's mistress, Anne Boleyn, stayed. People who have stayed there since then claim to have seen the ghost of Anne. Although Grandpa Getty was filthy, stinking rich, he was also known to be very tight-fisted with his money, and he even had payphones installed at the castle so that he wouldn't have to foot the bill for people who were making calls out of his house, which is pretty... Oh, you have $9.5 billion and you're worried about a quarter? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a little it's a little odd to to expect your guests to pay for a quick phone call out of your castle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's unknown from the research how many children Grandpa Getty had in total. He may have had four or five, and he eventually went on to have 15 grandchildren, although he really was not particularly close to any of them. One of Grandpa Getty's kids that we know about for sure, though, was John Paul Jr., Junior was, of course, heir to his father's billion-dollar empire and fortune, and eventually he was put in charge of Getty Oil Italiana. Junior eventually married the daughter of a federal judge named Gail, and the two of them produced four children in total, one of which was John Paul III, who we will be referring to as Paul. Paul was born on November 4, 1956. When he was around 18 months old, his family moved to Italy, first living in Venice, then Milan, and finally Rome. As a young child, Paul knew that his family name was something special and that his family had more money than everyone else. He recalled times as a child when he'd be riding around in the family Rolls Royce and he would feel super uncomfortable with all the people gawking at them, so he would just kind of sink down and slide into the seat to hide himself. The family had access to all the materialistic things in the world, but Paul said that he didn't have a really great relationship with his father. He even described John Paul Jr. as being a very strange man and had very few memories of ever really doing anything with him. In 1964, when Paul was eight years old, his parents divorced and Gail won custody of Paul and his three siblings. By 1966, both Gail and John Paul Jr. had moved on and remarried. They both actually went on to marry B-list movie actors, which is kind of interesting. They both had a type and it was not each other, apparently. <laughs> so Gail married Lang Jeffries and she packed up all the kids and moved to Brentwood, California, which is an affluent suburb in Los Angeles and also coincidentally where Nicole Brown Simpson was murdered. Meanwhile, Jean-Paul Jr. stayed behind in Italy and married Talitha Pohl. So I keep saying John and Jean. Just know that I mean to say Jean like I know what I'm talking about, but it's sometimes my American accent is coming out and uh, Florida accent, and I just can't do it. The two of them became addicted to heroin and actually started traveling around and doing drugs together. Eventually, their relationship fizzled out and they started seeing other people. But in 1971, Jean-Paul Jr. reached out to Talitha and said he wanted her back. He invited her over to talk and Talitha actually died hours later. Her cause of death was listed as cardiac arrest, but no one really knows exactly what happened that night. John Paul Jr. said that she came over and they talked about getting back together and he promised to give up drugs and break up with all of his current mistresses if she would just come back. She stayed the night, but she never woke up in the morning. An autopsy revealed high levels of alcohol and barbiturates in her blood. At the time that Talitha died, being in possession of narcotics was a huge deal in Italy. So to avoid any trouble from authorities, like being found out for also using drugs, John Paul Jr. left the country and went to Bangkok. 
He hid out there for just two months and then went back to Italy. But the grief of being back where Talitha had died was too strong and too intense. And Junior turned back to drugs to cope. He started actually using drugs more than he ever had before. In March of 1972, police attempted to get Jean-Paul Jr. to come for an interview, but instead he fled to London where he continued his life of addiction and he really never looked back. In the years following Jean-Paul Jr.'s divorce from Gail, Paul said that he rarely saw his father and would occasionally get what he described as weird telegrams and postcards from him. When Paul was moved to California with his mom and his new stepdad, he really struggled with fitting in with the American culture and the American way of life. Even though he had actually been born in the United States, he was embarrassed by that fact. And he believed that Americans were lousy and fake people with strange culture, you know, of hamburgers and tacos and beer. And he felt that Americans were really insincere and that they were nice to your face. And then they would try to double cross you behind your back. Whereas in Italy, if someone didn't like you, they will just tell you that straight to your face. So lucky for Paul, his mother's marriage to Lang was pretty short lived. And within just a year, she moved herself and the kids back to Rome. But struggles didn't end there for Paul. He rebuked authority and he was a constant troublemaker who got kicked out of numerous schools for acting out in these outrageous ways. For example, if Paul didn't like something his teacher told him, he would stick his finger down his throat and make himself throw up all over his desk. How does somebody even figure out they can do that? Like, yeah, like <laughs> you're how just do you in come classroom? up with the idea to do that? It's creative thinking. It's thinking on the fly. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So this was at a time when it was common for teachers to also swat children for misbehaving. And there was one time when Paul was reprimanded with a ruler, he got swatted across his knuckles and he got his revenge by waiting until the teacher was sitting down eating. And then he took the ruler and hit the teacher in the knuckles as well, like nearly breaking this teacher's fingers. Yikes. So Paul was really quite a character and he was well known around the schools he attended. Of course, the other students thought he was funny and, you know, he was like the class clown and they really liked him and he was popular and he would bring things to school like strobe lights and smoke bombs and he would steal exam papers and kind of share answers with everybody around the school. So over the years, he was tossed out of as many as eight schools, although he himself said that getting kicked out of 10 or 20 would have been more impressive. Paul wasn't just a handful in school. He was also a lot to deal with outside of school as well. One of his favorite activities was to go as fast as he could on motorcycles and in cars, and he racked up as many as 20 to 30 accidents. Somehow, though, the only real injury he ever sustained was a concussion after one accident in which he hit a wall at 70 miles an hour without a helmet on. In another motorcycle accident, he rolled his bike eight times and walked away unscathed. Paul was also very popular around town. He spent a lot of time at the discos in Rome, and everyone really knew who he was. He was the grandson of the richest man alive. Thanks to Grandpa Getty's clout, Paul became somewhat of a celebrity groupie, and he hung out with the likes of Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey, Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, Roman Polanski, and even Mick Jagger. As an avid movie lover, this was a lifestyle that Paul really enjoyed. In 1972, when Paul was just 15 years old, he moved into an apartment with a couple of friends. They were just living the life, hanging around celebrities, and Paul even began acting as an extra in spaghetti westerns. 
Spaghetti westerns are also called Italian westerns, and the term was used by American movie critics and those in other countries because these westerns were produced by Italians. Even though Paul was doing a little acting, he was running out of money. He'd been living off of his mom's support payments since he wasn't old enough to draw his money from his trust yet. He tried to make money selling his paintings to tourists, but that was really a flop. He also dabbled in modeling a little bit. In 1973, he started dating a 24-year-old German actress named Martine Zacher. The two would spend their nights at the discos and town squares. Martine also had a twin sister named Jutta. While Paul was dating Martine, she and Jutta were abducted by men who claimed that they wanted to help finance a movie that the twins were wanting to make. Paul actually even attempted to rescue the young women, but was unsuccessful. After being held for three days, the twins managed to escape at an opportune time. There were actually around 50 kidnappings in Italy in the last two years leading up to this story, which is kind of interesting to note before we get into the rest. But before we continue on with our story about Jean-Paul III, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We're all true crime lovers here, and I think part of my interest in true crime is watching the puzzle pieces come together to tell a story. And that's part of why I love the puzzle game, Best Fiends. It's like uncovering new pieces to a puzzle you get to be a part of. I also love that the levels don't take a ton of time, so I can play a quick round while I'm waiting for my coffee to brew in the mornings. Another perk of Best Fiends is that it doesn't require the internet to play, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi access or going through your cell data. Best Fiends is the perfect game for me. I love listening to podcasts at night when my kids are down and just turning my game on to work my way through the levels. I'm currently on level 361, and I truly enjoy each level more and more. I love that Best Fiends updates monthly, so there's always new levels and events, so it never gets old or stale. Plus, the levels are fun and challenging. My favorite fiends at the moment are Howie and Bob, but they're really also great, so I love that I'm able to change them out on different levels so that I can strategically use the best fiends I need for that particular level. The characters and goals are always changing in the level, so it keeps the game exciting and never boring. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it in your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. 
Before the break, we were talking about Jean-Paul Getty III, who was heir to a massive fortune that had been amassed by his grandfather. Paul was young and he was really poor due to not having access to his trust money yet, but he was living the good life with a girlfriend that he really admired and they were spending a lot of time hanging out with celebrities and really using the Getty family name to his benefit. Paul's mom, Gail, always worried about Paul being out on the town and on the streets, and she always told him to be careful, which was something that Paul brushed off as nonsense and never really took seriously. But in the wee morning hours of July 10th, 1973, Paul found himself in one of the most terrifying situations I think anybody can imagine. The day before, on July 9th, Paul had slept all day, and it was very late in the night when he finally woke up. A short while later, he met up with two of his friends and they went to the Piazza Navona and then to a disco where Paul proceeded to get drunk before leaving the disco a little while later. While he was very intoxicated and walking back to the plaza he had been at earlier, he ran into a woman he knew and they started fighting with each other. This was a really loud argument and Paul was loudly swearing at her, but it's unclear what exactly they were fighting about. When they finally parted ways, it was around three o'clock in the morning. Paul continued on his walk and stopped at a newsstand to buy a comic book and some newspapers before heading back down the street. Paul says that while he was walking, he looked up and he saw a big sculptured mask at the end of the road. So he stopped walking and he was just standing there staring at it. And suddenly a big white car pulled up and three men jumped out of the car and grabbed Paul from behind and pulled him in. He said that this happened so quickly in just about three or four seconds that he didn't even have a chance to think about what was going on. A fourth man, who was the driver, took off once Paul was inside the car. Upon being kidnapped, Paul initially thought that maybe he'd made somebody mad by sleeping with their girlfriend, or maybe the men who just snatched him right off the street were police officers. But things got serious when two of the men started hitting Paul over the back of the head with their pistols, and then someone covered his face with a cloth and he passed out. So it's, you know, thought that maybe they used chloroform or something like that right. on him. While Paul was unconscious, the men tied his wrists and ankles and covered his eyes with a bandana. When Paul woke up, he was bound like that in the back of the car, and he could tell that the back of his head was bleeding. The men then asked Paul for his documents, and Paul said that he did not have them. They asked him what his name was, and he told them that he was John Paul III. At this point, one of the men explained that from that point on, no one would be speaking to him. If Paul wanted something, he could ask for it, and they would communicate with him through claps. One clap meant the answer was yes, and two claps meant the answer is no. Okay, that's terrifying if they're like, not going to talk to you anymore. One is yes, two is no. In about 30 seconds, I would forget which was which and would do something so stupid. You know, I just would not be able to, I I don't know. That's just such a stressful situation. Then now now you have to remember a code. I know that's an easy code, but in a stressful situation, you can see how that would be. I don't know. To me, that's the first thing I thought when I read that, like, I couldn't do it. Just the first rule already, I'm already out. So at this point, Paul began to suspect that he had been kidnapped, although he says that he wasn't really scared because he thought if these men planned to communicate with him at all, that that meant that they weren't planning on killing him. They continued in the car for six more hours. All the while, Paul was thinking about a modeling appointment he had the next day and that he was now going to miss it because of this. 
So the mysterious men drove Paul around over 250 miles away from Rome to a place at the toe of Italy's boot, and it's a place called Calabria. When they arrived, the men yanked Paul out of the car and laid him down on a blanket on the ground. They removed the ropes that held his ankles and wrists together, but they taped his blindfold to his face so that it wouldn't come off. Every few hours, they would make Paul stand up and walk a couple hundred yards. They did this four or five times that first day. Paul said that whenever he had to use the bathroom, someone would pull his pants down for him, and he said that he could tell by vibrations that his kidnappers were really scared. Full-scale paranoia is what he called it. While Paul was in captivity, his captors allowed him to drink coffee and as much cognac as Paul wanted, and so Paul said that he was drunk most of this time. He was also given warm pasta to eat. For the first several days after Paul was kidnapped, it seemed like his abductors really had no idea what to even do with him. On the fourth or fifth day, the kidnappers drove him around and walked him down a hill so that he could drink water from a fountain. And on this trip, one of the men pulled off Paul's blindfold and another one immediately yelled, don't hurt him. Paul could see that all of his captors were wearing masks, and he said they were the kind of masks that you would see like Vikings from movies wearing, which really is scary to think about if you think about because there's multiple people that have him, you know, in captivity. So you're talking about like maybe as many as 10 guys with these Viking masks on and everyone's just like standing there staring at you and trying, you know, keeping you there. It's horrifying to think about this situation that he was in. Yeah. So one of the men told Paul that they were paid and that he would be there with them for a very long time. And he said that they would try to get Paul whatever he needed, but he shouldn't try to do anything stupid by any means. In some ways, Paul was relieved that he'd been able to take his blindfold off, but then he actually started getting worried because the thought occurred to him that if one of these men forgot to wear their mask or if it somehow slipped off and Paul was able to get a good look at their faces, then he feared that they would just kill him. Yeah. Finally, on July 18th, after a week in captivity, the kidnappers took Paul to a more comfortable hut, built him a fire, and fed him his first real meal since they had kidnapped him. Although the men wore masks the entire time, Paul was able to kind of size them up a little for the first time. There were seven of them in total, and all the men had multiple guns on them. Paul remembered that they looked like, in his opinion, poor Italians who wanted to appear to have money. And he said they wore baggy suits and pastel colors, and these suits were not tapered like to fit them. You could tell they were just cheap suits. And... Their shoes didn't fit them well, and they didn't have the proper socks to go along. So keep in mind, Paul is, he comes from money, so he knows what rich people dress like. After Paul had eaten his meal, he was told to give the addresses of his mother, his father, and his grandfather. And then Paul was forced to write each of them a letter explaining that he'd been kidnapped and that this was not a joke, and he needed them to get in contact with the kidnappers and meet their demands so that he could go free. He pleaded with his family members not to go to the police or to the media and emphasized that he was truly in a dangerous situation. In Paul's letter to Grandpa Getty, he wrote, quote, I know that we haven't been very close, but I hope you know that I love you. Please do whatever you can to get me out of here. This is serious. Love, Paul. It was clear that these men just wanted money, but Paul knew how Grandpa Getty was, and he didn't think he would give the captors any of his money. 
No one that received the letter from Paul actually took it seriously, which is even more shocking when you find out that one of the captors actually called Gail to tell her that her son had been kidnapped, and Gail actually believed that the call was a joke and that Paul had run off with some girl. Eventually, however, Gail did finally report Paul missing to the police, and an investigation was started into his disappearance. Pretty early on in the investigation, police contacted Paul's girlfriend, Martine. They also interviewed people from the area who knew Paul, but most people they spoke to had a hard time believing that Paul had actually been kidnapped. Some people suggested to police that Paul had simply run off to Morocco and that he was spreading the kidnapping story to make his way into the headlines. Another theory was that he'd gone to a secret alpine hideaway for a few weeks. All in all, though, no one was really taking the kidnapping seriously, including the police. Wild accusations started flying in the Italian press that Paul and his mom had faked the kidnapping to extort the money because she couldn't pay her rent. So the kidnappers even said, hey, this doesn't need to go to the police. This should not be in the news. And he's told people in these letters, and they're still telling people, and it's going to the press. Like, this information is out there, and people are claiming he faked it. I just can't imagine after, you know, finding out at some point that no one believed you. That would be terrifying to think you're just with these kidnappers, and they could do anything, and no one's believing that you're even with them. I just, I can't wrap my head around thinking that nobody in my family even believed me. Paul was given nicknames in the media, such as the Golden Hippie and the Oil Prince. At one point, Grandpa Getty released a statement in which he really showed that he didn't care too much. He said, quote, Although I see my grandson infrequently and I'm not particularly close to him, I love him nonetheless. However, I don't believe in paying kidnappers. I have 14 grandchildren, and if I pay one penny now, then I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. Gosh, I understand what he means, but oh, man. It is. Here's the thing. If it came from maybe somebody else, you would take it as, okay, if I, if I give money to this kidnapper, then people are just going to kidnap all my grandkids. Oh, my goodness. That's going to be terrible. I don't want that to happen to my grandkids, right? But if you know this guy puts in a payphone in his castle and he right. says that, you have to think, oh, well, he just doesn't want to lose the money. And then every kid that gets kidnapped, he now has to pay out. That's a big bummer for him. You know, it depends on who said it and it coming from him. It just doesn't seem like the safety of his grandchildren was necessarily the top of his list. It could have been, but it just doesn't really, I didn't perceive it that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Paul's captors weren't just asking for a small ransom. An attorney for Paul's mom was in communication with the kidnappers, and he had received a letter stating that the captors wanted 10 billion Italian lira, which isn't even a thing anymore. They stopped using that currency in 2002, but this would amount to 17 million U.S. dollars or 99 million in today's money. So that is a very hefty ransom. Nobody asks for 99 million dollars in ransom. Yeah, So the kidnappers wanted the money in small notes, and they threatened to kill Paul if they didn't deliver on this money. Later that same evening, the attorney held a press conference and publicly said that the captors were making unreasonable requests and they should ask for less money, which is also a weird thing, like for the attorney to go on TV and be like, yeah, you should ask for less money. Like the whole thing just seems very, it's just so hard to believe that like that that's how things went in this case. Right. Of course, it wasn't the 70s. This is a long time ago. Can you imagine now, like, 
negotiating with a kidnapper like that on in the media, you know, and saying, oh, you should just ask for less. Like, that's not a thing. We don't encourage them to ask for less. I know. Right? It does seem like something you would hear in negotiations in an attorney's office where they like whispered to the person next to him, hey, like if you want this, if you really want yeah. this, you should ask for a little <laughs> less money. Not like going on national TV. You can't whisper to somebody on national TV. So it's just, it is a very weird visual to think of him, you know, just talking to the kidnappers and like, just ask for less. We'll see what we can do if you ask for less. It's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is strange. So several days later, the kidnappers called the lawyer and once again threatened to kill Paul if they didn't get their money. The lawyer told them that the most a kidnapper ever got in Italy was 300 million lira, which would be around $2.9 million today. But the kidnappers said that that was a joke and to tell Paul's mom to get the money from London, assuming that they meant she should get it from Grandpa Getty. A week later, the kidnappers asked if they had the 300 million lira ready, and Gail's lawyer told them that they didn't have that much, but that Gail's friend from America was in town, and she was able to pull together $100,000. But the captors again said that was not nearly enough money, and that for $100,000, they would send a picture of Paul missing a limb. (gasps) That's terrifying. Yeah, because what can you do if that's truly what you can come up with? You know, right. that's, that's a lot of pressure. Right. So the captors then changed their minds again on the amount of money they wanted, and they demanded $3 billion lira, which is $29 million today. So these kidnappers really are all over the place with their demands. Yeah. And because of this, the police still weren't taking them seriously. One official said, quote, I ask you, what kind of criminals would not be able to make up their minds about the money? First, they say they want 10 billion lira, then 300 million lira, then 3 billion lira, which that's a very valid point. Like, that is not a typical thing that you see with kidnappers wanting a ransom to bounce around and like, you know, offer all these different amounts. It just seems really strange that they would be doing it that way. Right. By late August, several weeks after Paul had been kidnapped, his own mother and her attorney still weren't sure if the kidnapping was even real and said that there were moments they were sure the whole thing was a hoax. Paul's father, who was still living in London and going through rehab, had no income, but he offered to pay $1 million for his son's return. But in exchange, he wanted custody of all of his children. The kidnappers rejected that offer anyways, and they said that they would wait for $2.9 million instead. Isn't that really weird, though, that the dad would be like, I'll give a million dollars for this son, but I want custody. Like, now you're negotiating with your ex-wife. You know what While I mean? While you have a child that is kidnapped, kidnapped and missing. Yes. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's all crazy. So meanwhile, weeks were passing by, and Paul was going through this absolutely horrific experience with his captors and we're going to get right into what life was like for paul during this time after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors i am a stress eater and lately i've become more of a stress inhaler i see food i eat it but i still have goals on how i want to treat my body even when i don't make the best choices and that's why i love noom When I eat better, I feel better. And that's really my goal with Noom, just to feel better and healthier every day. And I love that Noom is not a diet, but it's a healthy and easy to stick to way of life where no food is good, bad, or off limits. Noom helps teach you moderation and can be used in conjunction with many pre-existing popular diets if you want. 
I love knowing that when I'm dying to have a piece of cake, I can. I shouldn't sheet cake the whole thing, but eating a piece isn't the end of the world because truly it isn't. Noom is great for anyone because it doesn't tell you what to do and what not to do. It helps teach you how to make those better decisions for yourself. I love that I can always reach out to my Noom specialist or other Noomers when I feel like I'm in a rut or just need support. It's also great to see that other people are going through the same things. So just having the support there at your fingertips is so helpful. The app is super easy to use. You just need to commit 10 minutes a day to using Noom and reading the articles, which are super helpful and encouraging and not condescending. Logging your meals is incredibly easy and Noom gives you a visual of your food's breakdown so you actually learn what changes you should make and why without any judgment. Big progress always starts with small steps and you can sign up for your trial today at noomnoom.com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's noom.com slash moms. For all our sakes, we need to avoid crowds any way we can right now. But what if you need to go to the post office? What if you need postage to send out letters and packages? Don't worry, Stamps.com is here to help. With Stamps.com, you can print postage on demand, plus get the crowds and lines at the post office. Stamps.com not only saves you a trip, but it also saves you time. With Stamps.com, you can simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a free package pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. No human contact required. It's that simple. We send out a lot of cards for Patreon, and with that comes a lot of stamps, even international ones. I love that I don't need to run to the post office to grab just a few international stamps, but can print them from my computer and get them out the same day. Plus, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts, including 5 cents off every first-class stamp, up to 40% off USPS shipping rates. One really cool thing Stamps.com also offers is UPS services with discounted rates up to 62%. Plus, if you're using Stamps.com for UPS, you don't even have to pay the UPS residential surcharges. Stamps.com is truly a no-brainer, especially now, and saves you time and money. Right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Moms and Murder. That's stamps.com, enter Moms and Murder. Stay safe, my friends. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about the back and forth that was going on between Paul's captors and his family, who still at this point basically believe the entire kidnapping was a hoax. Meanwhile, though, Paul was going through some incredibly terrible things. His captors decided to give him a radio after about 10 days, and Paul heard the news of his kidnapping, and he knew that the situation he was in was very serious. He said it didn't really hit him until he heard the media talking about it on the radio, and I'm sure also terrified him to know that it had made it to the media after these guys definitely said, hey, don't tell the media about this. So one day, Paul's captors forced him to climb for eight hours on rough terrain to the top of a mountain and only gave him cognac to drink instead of water, causing Paul to become, of course, severely intoxicated to the point of being unable to stand. When they reached the top of the mountain, there was a car waiting for them and the men put Paul into the car and drove him to an abandoned Nazi bunker. It was a tiny place. It was less than 12 feet wide and it was so low that Paul had to bend over at all times. His captors gave him magazines to read in the bunker and would let him outside once a day to smoke a cigarette and to drink more cognac. It seems like it would be just cheaper and all around better for them to just give him water. I I know. (laughs) The only thing I could think about this is if 
okay, they're doing this for money, right? If some of them, I don't know, maybe this is a movie thing that I'm thinking more so, where if somebody like feels kind of bad for him and they think that maybe giving him that would kind of ease his mind. Do you know what I mean? Like if they thought right, they were yeah. almost being helpful to kind of put him out of his misery in a way where he didn't have to. But yeah, give me some water. I'm going to need water if I'm living in a bunker at some point. But yeah, they just keep giving him Cognac, and hiking up a mountain i can't imagine a, a worse situation than being on this like rough terrain you're like physically exerting yourself and someone is like here drink alcohol like that just sounds terrible Mm-mm, no thank you so days later they moved him again into a hut that they had built paul was chained to one of the stakes of the hut and he was kept there for 50 days during this time while paul was chained up he said he started to feel like he was absolutely going crazy As a way of keeping track of time, he found a rock and began putting a single scratch on the rock each day. He said this became the highlight of his day. So I feel bad complaining about quarantine when this was the highlight of the guy's day. So he began losing his sense of time and would try to focus on the positive things like the scenic mountain views or when he got three sausages in a can instead of two. Oh my gosh. When Paul was lucky, his captors would let him go to a nearby creek where he would use a stick to draw in the sand. After seeing how artistic Paul was and how much he liked drawing, the captors brought him some watercolors and Paul used them to start painting on rocks. He painted self-portraits on the rocks sometimes because he just wanted to look at a real face and not at these Viking masks that his kidnappers had on the entire time. So isn't that the entire plot to... uh castaway whenever tom hanks paints wilson's face it's the same idea right because he wants to see a human face yeah so paul was allowed to bathe in the creek a few times a week but the water was extremely cold so oftentimes he would just wash his hands his feet and his face and in between baths he would lick his hands clean if they got dirty So after about 50 days of this, Paul's kidnappers thought the police were nearby, so they transferred Paul to a different location once again. It was a six-hour walk, but by this point, Paul was extremely weak, and he had lost a lot of muscle mass due to essentially being starved of food and water for the last almost two months. He was bounced around to several different caves before his captors finally decided to settle in a three by six foot cave that had a foam rubber mattress that Paul could sleep on. There were no lights and the cave was absolutely pitch black. So when he ate his food, he had to use a flashlight. He couldn't sleep due to the confinement of the cave and he started doing strange things like he convinced himself that if he was going to have any kind of good luck, then he had to touch the bread that they gave him in a certain way. So he was like creating his own kind of rituals in his head, like I have to do this or, you know, X, Y, Z is going to happen. And he kind of started picking up some different habits that maybe he would not have done otherwise. So at this point, it had been over two months since Paul was kidnapped and his captors were getting really impatient with the fact that nobody had put up the money yet. One of the kidnappers told Paul that if Grandpa Getty didn't hurry up, they'd start cutting off parts of his body and mailing them to his family. Paul was horrified and became so scared that he chose not to say anything at all to these men who had him held in captivity anymore. Instead, he spent his time wondering how and when they would start cutting him up. One day, the masked men came in and announced that they were going to be giving Paul a haircut. They cut off all of his hair and then cleansed his scalp with alcohol and told him to go to bed. 
At first, Paul assumed that the men would start by cutting off one of his fingers, but he quickly realized that they actually intended to cut off one of his ears, and he thought they were going to most likely do it pretty soon since they just cleaned that area with alcohol and they wouldn't want to give it time to get dirty again. They brought Paul five steaks and told him that he better eat. When he was so full that he couldn't eat anymore, eight or nine men came in and blindfolded Paul and put a handkerchief in his mouth. Several of the men restrained Paul while one man cut off his right ear. Oh my gosh. So why do you think they gave him five steaks? Is it like a I don't guilt know. thing or, you know, where you're, or they thought he wouldn't be able to eat or, do you know what I mean? It, it almost seems like somebody in that group felt kind of bad with what they were doing. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, there's these moments where you kind of feel like they don't really want to hurt him. They are, and they're part of this group that is hurting him, but it's a really bizarre thing to be like, you know what, five steaks tonight and we're going to cut off your ear. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. It is a little strange. So Paul described the pain as being so excruciating and intense that he didn't even scream. He just bit into the handkerchief and cried. For the next 10 days, Paul could barely move. His wound was bleeding and hemorrhaging for days, and his captors started giving him shots of penicillin and vitamins every day, but it didn't help. Of course, this isn't done surgically or in any type of you know clean environment, so the risk of infection is super high. Finally, the kidnappers told Paul that they were taking him to another place and that he'd be going home soon. They encouraged him to get up and move around and also removed his bandages and took photos of his ear. The kidnappers then placed Paul's ear in a plastic envelope along with some of his hair and mailed it to one of the biggest Italian newspapers. Unfortunately, and this is another crazy side to this story, the Italian Postal Service was on strike, so the package containing his ear wasn't mailed for several days. So nobody believes you, and now the post office is on strike. It's just a lot a lot going on for this poor guy. So on November 10th, 1973, the newspaper called Gail's attorney and said they'd gotten this package with an ear and a note that said it was Paul's. The note read, quote, this is Paul's first ear. If within 10 days the family still believes that this is a joke mounted by him, then the other ear will arrive. In other words, he will arrive in little bits, end quote. Even though Gail looked at the ear and believed it was her son's based on the freckles, the police still didn't believe it. They had the ear examined at a lab to see if it was actually from a living human, and the lab confirmed that the ear had been cut from a living person. On November 16th, a newspaper reporter got another call stating that the captors left something interesting near the highway. When the reporter went to check it out, there were Polaroid photos of Paul without his ear. Those photos made their way to the front page of numerous magazines. Once those images of Paul came out, Grandpa Getty finally decided to cave and pay the ransom, but he was only willing to put up $2.2 million because that was the maximum tax-deductible amount. Are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. So Grandpa paid the full amount up front, but he wanted Paul to repay $700,000 of it back and with 4% interest. I want to scream. (laughs) (laughs) It's really unbelievable for as much money as he had. You absolutely don't think people like this really exist. Honestly, I would never think that somebody would (laughs) charge interest to my grandson's ransom or, you know, even consider somebody paying it back or anything. It just does not seem like a real human would do that. No, it is really uncomfortable for me to think it about. is I don't want to, 
Like, it's just very, I don't like that. It's crazy. No. Once Paul's captors knew that they were about to get a lot of money, they started being super nice to Paul and they started giving him good food and letting him go on walks. And he was allowed to drink all the alcohol he wanted. One day, the kidnappers told Paul that they had received the money, but they couldn't release him yet due to it being a Sunday and there being a gas shortage. So they actually weren't allowed to drive, but they said that they were going to release him the following day. At around 5 p.m. the next day, Paul was given a sweater and a blindfold and forced to lay down in the back of the car while the men drove for four to five hours. When the car stopped, Paul was taken outside and sat down on a blanket and the kidnappers said that they would inform his mom that he was there. Then they just left him there. Once Paul could no longer hear cars, he took off his blindfold and looked around to be sure there was nobody watching him. He then got up and started walking along the highway, but he looked pretty scary with these bandages all over his head and his eyes were all puffy and his face and clothes were really dirty. So nobody stopped to help him. He thought maybe if he laid on the ground and pretended to be dead that somebody would stop, but nobody did. And something about that in particular just really breaks my heart. Yeah, that you, that you that have he, to think that. He, yeah, that he was all banged up and everything and then he laid on the ground like, Maybe if someone thinks I'm dead, then they will call for help. And still nobody did. After all he's been through, he just wants to get like, find the nearest person to say like, I need the police or I need help, you know, and nobody is like even stopping to ask him if he's okay. Paul eventually walked to a gas station and he asked to use the phone to call the police. But the person that was working at the store told him no and that he needed to leave. So Paul kept walking for hours, and even when it started pouring rain, he just kept on walking. And finally, a truck stopped, and when Paul introduced himself and asked for a ride to the police station, the truck driver suddenly had a change of heart, and he just decided to take off. But the truck driver, while he was driving away, actually overheard on the radio that police were looking for this man named Paul Getty. So he went to the police station and told them about this encounter that he had had with this man on the side of the road. And police drove down the highway and eventually found Paul. The police chief took Paul to his own home and gave him spaghetti and then took him to the police station where he was then interrogated by military police. They even gave him amphetamines and continued the questioning. The next morning, Paul's mother showed up to the police station, but the military police didn't want to let Paul go, but after being threatened with causing a big scandal for them, they let Paul leave. When they left the station, there were thousands of onlookers, and when they drove off, 30 cars trailed behind them. You have to just be, to be him and to be like, I just want to put this behind me. I just want this to be over with. And then you have thousands of people looking at you in the shape that you're in and how terrible you feel and how scared you are. And I can't imagine that with 30 cars following you. That's just crazy. So Paul was then taken to the Rome police station where there were hordes of people waiting to just get a glimpse of Paul. After he was questioned by Rome police, he was taken to a private guarded clinic where he stayed for three days before going to stay in an apartment. Police really wanted to find these kidnappers, but Paul told them that in the entire time he was with them, he never saw their faces because they wore those masks, so he was not didn't think he'd ever be able to identify any of them. Shortly after being released, Paul went away to a place in the Tyrolean Alps so he could recuperate. He didn't speak to his family much at first, and he never asked his mom why it took so long for someone to pay his ransom, but he did call his grandfather and thanked him for putting up the money. He didn't actually speak with his grandfather, though, but an aide relayed the message and told Paul that Grandpa Getty said, 
you're welcome, and good luck. Paul eventually started living with his girlfriend, Martine. In January of 1974, hundreds of policemen began searching dozens of homes in the mountains and valleys of Calabria and arrested three of the kidnappers. Over the next few years, police arrested five more as they continued their investigation into the kidnapping. They also recovered some of the ransom money. The men responsible for kidnapping Paul were all Calabria natives and mafia members, and this mafia group in particular was known for mutilating kidnapping victims to get their demands met. In 1976, two of the men went on trial and were found guilty and sentenced to 16 and 8 years respectively, but the other men were acquitted due to a lack of evidence. The man that got the 16-year sentence is the one who actually cut Paul's ear off. The ringleader of the group had actually been on the run after escaping from jail prior to the kidnapping, and police finally caught up with him and arrested him in 1992. In September of 1974, Paul and Martine got married, although because Paul was under the age of 22, getting married to her meant that he would have to give up his $200,000 share of a trust fund, which had this rule that you could not be married before the age of 22 or you don't get the money. So why couldn't Grandpa Getty at this point be like, you know what, you've been kidnapped and we didn't believe you and someone took your ear. I'm going to let this slide. If you have somebody that loves you and wants to take care of you and, you know, is in your life, we can we can make a change to the trust fund. I really don't like this guy at all. <laughs> I don't either. He really, I feel like just makes like just he's like a mean grandpa. I don't know. I would just hate that because I don't feel like grandpas should be that way. No, not at all. So once Paul and Martine were married, Paul actually adopted Martine's two-year-old daughter. Later in 1974, the couple moved to L.A. and in January of 1975, they had their own son together. But shortly after the birth of their son, both Paul and Martine began doing drugs again and partying with celebrities and they were both having affairs. Grandpa Getty passed away in June of 1976, leaving behind a $2 billion trust for his family. Aren't you kind of surprised he didn't leave it to like a cat or something? Just somebody that would yes, do that, right? Or donate all of it, like which would be fine too if he donated all to charity. But he seemed like exactly the kind of guy who would do something like that too, like give it all to like one charity and like nothing for his family. What was it from Mommy Dearest? The uh, Joan Crawford gives like in the will gives her daughter nothing, like says she's a terrible person and she suffered all all this abuse. I can't remember if she gave it to another kid or maybe just said she was miserable and I'd never give it to her. I should rewatch Mommy Dearest, but um but it's terrible. It's the same kind of vibe I get from this guy where just just I can't believe I actually cannot believe he gave it in a trust to his family. Yeah, for sure. So Paul Jr. got about $4 million, which would be equivalent to $18 million today. And that was received by him within the first year. And then by the early 1980s, he started receiving around $28 million per year. So he became a huge charity donor and donated more than $200 million in Britain alone before he died in 2003. Beginning in 1977, Paul started a series of surgeries where they used some of his rib cartilage to create a new ear, which was then implanted under his skin. He worked for the family business for a short while, but then he began acting. He starred in two movies, according to IMDb. They were called The State of Things and The Territory. But his drug and alcohol habits finally caught up to him in 1981. In April of that year, Paul was in treatment for a severe and debilitating medical condition caused in part by his alcoholism. 
He was given Valium, Dalmane, and Placidil, and after taking these medications, he suffered a stroke and fell into a coma. Following the stroke, Paul needed round-the-clock care, which his mother Gail and a nurse provided. Although his father, Paul Jr., was rich, he didn't want to help pay for Paul's medical care. He was later ordered by a judge to help financially. Millions of dollars this guy gets a year. It's great that he's giving to charity. Wonderful that he's giving to charity. But my goodness, you can't help your son. I just felt bad like for Paul III, this entire story, because right? I felt like nobody in his family really cared about him. Nobody had his back ever. I mean, Martine did, I guess. But after that, after you've had a stroke and you literally... It's not a cop-out. He needed help just to survive, and his father can't be bothered to help him with that. I will never understand the dynamics in this family. It is crazy cuckoo bananas. I don't get it. So Paul and Martine separated in 1986 and finally divorced in 1993, but they remained friends. Paul and his mom lived in California and then Ireland for a while before settling in a 2,500-acre estate just outside of London that was previously owned by Paul Jr., on February 5th, 2011, Paul died at his home in England. His cause of death wasn't disclosed, but as we know, he wasn't in really great health, so it could have been anything. So Haley researched this story, as Mandy said before, and she got a lot of information from a Rolling Stones article called John Paul Getty III, Exclusive 1974 Interview with Kidnapped Oil Air by Joe Esteras. So we'll put uh, the link, of course, to that in our show notes. We'll have all the sources in there as per usual. But Mandy, my goodness, this story was bananas. So bananas. And after I read it over and I even wrote uh, Haley and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the craziest story. And she started to say, like, oh, if it's too out there and crazy and you guys don't want to talk about it, then, you know, and I said, no way. This is perfect. I loved it. It was awesome. And we haven't done a non-murder case in a while, so... That was a little bit refreshing for me this week oh, to for sure. do a story like this, you know, instead of one where somebody was unfortunately killed. Yeah, no, it was a very interesting story. Terrible what happened to him. The freaking family. Oh, my goodness. I just I can't I cannot comprehend it. I didn't see the movie with Mark Wahlberg. Did you see that movie? I did. Is it good? I thought it was pretty good. Yes, I rented it on Amazon uh, one day and I just laid in bed and watched it and it was good. It was, of course, a movie. So right. not everything in the movie was like as you know, super accurate, but it was really good. Yeah. And I like Marky Mark. So, yeah, I don't think Marky yeah. Mark likes being called Marky Mark. That's the first rule of Marky <laughs> Mark, Mandy. And don't mention the Funky Bunch. <laughs> You does not want to hear about that. I want, yeah, I want to check it out, but I can't even imagine how you make this movie more Hollywood. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you make the grandfather seem like more of a villain? I don't think you could. State the facts. Yeah. This is terrible. Mandy and I were saying it's like almost like a Batman villain. It just, it's hard to believe somebody like that exists. I know I've said that like 50 times, but it really blew my mind when your family's in crisis that somebody would do that. I just don't get it. So, oh my gosh. Insane story. Thank you so much, Haley, for that. And Mandy, we are doing last thing before we go this week, and you can kick it off. I'm sorry. I'm just moving. We, yes, we're going to turn the page, and boy, are we ever. We talked last week, um, mentioned that we were going to do our hero segment last week instead of this week, because this week we had something else entirely in mind. So the time has come. We're here. We're going to talk about Tiger King. Yay. I don't know if anybody wants to hear us talk about Tiger King, but if you do, we're doing it right now. 
if you don't, you can shut this off. Yeah, I, <laughs> people have a lot of opinions on this. So if this is not, you did not like the documentary, you, you know, whatever, then this is a great time to turn it off because we're just going to talk about the characters in it and that's just where we're going with it. So turn it off if you need to, that's fine. Everyone else that watched it and was obsessed with the memes, here we go. I don't even know, where do you start with this? Did you happen to listen to the podcast on Wondery? Um, it was on their Over My Dead Body series. I think it was last year or the year before is oh where it first came out, like where I first heard of this story. I had never heard of it. No, 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 no. I didn't know that there was, I didn't know there was a podcast. But here's the thing. You can listen to the podcast, but until you see these people in real life with your own eyes, you don't understand it. It's such a crazy story, but the characters are like characters. I know they're real people, but don't they feel like something... I don't know. <laughs> like they could star in a Marky Mark movie, but Marky Mark is too classy for this group. I don't think he could do it. All right. <laughs> yeah, everybody is definitely a character and everybody has everyone is very unique in their own way. And Aww, there's like that's such no a one thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to put it as nicely as that's possible. That's very nice. But you know, everybody is very unique in this in this whole entire thing. All God's children. And I just yeah, I just I don't know. I don't even think I have like a favorite or a least favorite because I feel similarly about all of them across the board. Yeah. So if you haven't watched Tiger King, oh my gosh, first of all, you have to and then listen to this. But it kind of starts where you're meeting Joe Exotic. We're not going to go crazy detailed. We'll see where we get to. But where you meet this guy, Joe Exotic, who raises and has tiger cubs and uh, like a, his own zoo in Oklahoma. Thank you. How happy were you to know that the craziest parts of this story took place in Oklahoma and not Florida? Wasn't that just a relief? I mean, it was, but then like everybody in the world just like heard Florida and still associated the entire thing with us. Still. So. <laughs> there was parts of Florida in this story, but I did not think that Florida looked the worst in this. Oklahoma, it's your time to take the reins because what <laughs> was going on? And South Carolina, by the way, you guys can both have some kind of award. We're third place in this of the worst states yeah. in this story. <laughs> <laughs> I think for once we've passed, <laughs> we've passed the buck. But my goodness, everything about this documentary, it has, it has everything, Mandy. It really so does talking, everything. I don't even know where to go. They're talking to this guy, Joe. And then you find out that he has all these people in the animal world that hate him and he hates. Yeah. What's very cutthroat. I didn't know. Oh, my gosh. Did you have <laughs> any idea the world of tigers had, I had this many people no that hated each idea other? idea that the big cat people were so, like, ruthless. I have a serious question for you, Mandy. <laughs> okay. Did it ever sound like these people wanted to be with the tigers, yeah. like relationally. <laughs> like sometimes I was very confused. I'm like, wait, do you love the tigers or are you in love with the tigers? Because you couldn't tell. And sometimes they said in love. And I was like, I don't I don't think that's what you mean to say. No. And the camera's in your face, so I wish you would stop saying that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, Mandy, I'm going to go through just a few names in this story. And I'd like to hear your thoughts if you want to do it that way because I just don't know how else to – to recap seven episodes at the end of the last thing before okay. we go. I know. It's really hard. Rick Kirkman. Rick Kirkman, he was the producer of Joe Exotic TV. This whole thing where he's trying to help him get a reality show. He's the guy with the hat and the coffee cup the entire time. Okay. Did you have any thoughts on I Rick? lied. So if I said I didn't have a favorite, that was untrue because I think Rick is my favorite. Really? 
<laughs> he was so interesting, but like there's something about like just how he is. And I actually thought like by the end that I don't think he I feel like he felt bad about every like all the stuff like filming all this. And like, I think he was yeah. not really on board necessarily with everything going on. So I and I thought he was funny, like the way he talked was funny to he me. He was. Uh, David Spade this week, he's got that show um, Lights Out that's on Comedy Central. And of course, it's on hiatus, but he keeps doing these videos. And he's interviewed literally everyone from this cast. It's really, really good if you haven't seen it. But he interviewed Rick. I saw it today, so he must have interviewed him yesterday. And Rick talked about that, exactly what you're saying. He basically said, I realized about four or five months into filming, trying to help him make this show and trying to sell this documentary and, you know, trying to sell this myself that like, these are bad people. Like this is not a good situation, but I was already in it and I didn't know how to get out of it. Yeah. So you like in a way you wish, you know, obviously he would have gotten out of it, but he he even realized like this, I was wrong here. And I appreciate when people can say that because not everybody, Joe Exotic for one, can say when they're wrong and, and he could say it was wrong. Let's see, who else do we have here? We have, oh, Mandy, here's one. Here's a name that comes up quite a bit in the story and we have to be very careful with what we say here how about carol last name should start with the letter f according to joe exotic (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i know some people that are a lot like carol okay and I feel like everyone can think of at least one Carol Baskin they have in their life. And like, you yeah. just know the type. I mean, you just instantly, I just feel like even after seeing her just on the screen, I feel like I just know exactly who she is as a person. I feel like I know everything I need to know about her and I have my opinions on her. And sure, you know, sure. I, I don't feel like I thought that her whole act on this like series was really like transparent and like fake. Like I felt like she really tried to be like. She laid it on thick. Yes. So one of my favorite parts of Carol, which by the way, that's our Florida person, which is maybe partially why you and I both feel like we know Carol's because (laughs) first of all, we could have met her, but it does. She does have a Florida vibe going for her. But what I loved is, did you ever see a shot of her not with her hair windblown in the back, riding her bike (laughs) around the Like I was like, how did they get so many slow-mo bikes? If you watch Vanderpump Rules, the whole intro is just these slow-mo shots and I was like Carol got the same treatment as Vanderpump Rules this is amazing so she has this big cat rescue and she is arch enemies with Joe Exotic arch enemies like I've never seen people that hated each other more in my so wait so she hated him because she says that what she is doing is helping tigers and what Joe is doing is harming tigers he's exploiting them and he's doing it but really when you look back at it it's like I think everybody here is maybe not in the right um, with the animals and what people have said about the conditions and stuff like that. So it is a weird thing. Like it's like everybody's pointing at each other and who's wrong, but everybody thinks the other one's wrong. You know what I mean? Like right. nobody's getting out of this looking like, oh, well, you're doing the right thing. It just kind of seems like everybody's maybe not doing the right thing. Careful with my words here. I, I don't know. It just – it was really – it's just a lot take, taken. I personally loved her husband because I need that kind of ride or die person in my life. 
I don't think my husband would dress in a lion or a tiger costume <laughs> for our wedding on the beach with a collar around his neck. I don't think I married that much of a ride or die, apparently. <laughs> that was one of my favorite images from the entire series was them sitting on the beach and her holding him on a leash with a tiger costume on. Everything about this was so great for memes. The timing of this was so great with everything going on. So it was so nice to see all these crazy memes. No matter what you think of the story, I mean, it's uh, there are terrible things going on. We are very much aware of that. But there is a lot of joy that came out of this for me. Take those things aside, people say. You can't take them aside. Please take them aside for this. There were beautiful memes that came out of this, Mandy. Just every day you see like 30 new ones that you didn't even know could exist. Thank you to the meme makers in this kind of world. Mandy, next person, Doc Antle. Oh, boy. Bhagavan. Dr. Doctor Bhagavan Doc Antle. It's <laughs> a mouthful no one wants to say. Um, He really creeped me out a lot and... I just don't understand him, I guess. He seems very nice and everything. What? But also I mean, a little creepy. Go ahead. <laughs> he, he was another one that would play it up for the camera. All of them played it up for the cameras, though. But you would see him say, like, do you want me to, do you want to come to my door? And, to the documentarian, like, you just come up and then it's basically the same crap we do every week where we're like, how are you doing? Good. How are you? And we've already talked for three minutes before right. we ever did that. <laughs> so I get it. But it, it is funny to see him just like go into like uh, show mode or whatever. But like anyone that rides around flexing on a an elephant, like, come on, come on. There's there's other things going on there that I don't want to know about. There's and he has like a thousand wives. Nobody could give us how many wives he had. Yeah, Nobody but like how? And they're also young and gorgeous. And he is not that like I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know how he does it. I guess because he has money and tigers. Is that the thing? Because is it the tigers? I don't understand. Apparently, (laughs) it's the freaking tigers. That's all they kept talking about, how much tigers give you power. And I just didn't understand it. But I haven't touched a tiger, so I don't know. I have not seen a tiger and a tiger saw me. So I don't know. (laughs) But no, we'll see the thing with his stuff is it all like – it sounded, according to one of the girls that was there, a little culty. And so you have to wonder. It was just weird. But you know, also, we know with documentaries and stuff like this, they can tell you the story they want to tell. They have all the information and they can edit it in a way where it does kind of bias you to one way or the other. So you know that. So you know you're not getting the whole story. But the pieces that you do get and are presented to you um, cause you to pause, I guess. You yeah. just kind of think, huh, I'm not exactly sure. So here's one of my favorite people. This guy ended up being like the most normal person, surprisingly. Mario, is it Tabro? I can't remember how his last name is. The guy who's basically Scarface, he ended up being, to me, one of the most likable people. He like maybe helped with a murder and still was like kind of normal. I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really have much of an opinion on him, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't – they didn't focus a ton on him, but it was – there was a lot going on. Mandy, we'll go to a couple more. Let's see. Oh, um, so uh, Joe Exotic was married to – he had two husbands, and one was Travis, Travis Maldonado, and the other was John Finley. And they were an interesting bunch together because it didn't make sense to me. No, I don't think it made sense yeah, to them either. No. They were definitely an oddly matched – trio i would say i don't know i i guess it worked for them though they all seemed 
happy, I guess. I mean, Joe seemed happy all the time with his. Joe seemed happy. Yeah, Joe seemed happy. Yeah, but then you were like, I just don't know how happy they were. But that was like a, it was a weird dynamic because I don't know. It just didn't make, like you're saying, it does not make a lot of sense. They don't seem very well matched, but they were all there. Apparently, tigers do something to people. I guess I don't. (laughs) That's, I think, what I've learned from the entire thing. Tigers do something for people. And then, so Mandy, just like one Another one, tell me if you have anybody else you want to talk about. But the last person I want to talk about, and we can talk about whoever you want to, James Garretson. And that's the man who rode in for no reason on a jet ski for like 45 seconds. He got just like <laughs> his own solo jet skiing thing. Like he basically must have told the producers, I'll be in your stupid documentary, but I want you showing the people that I jet ski and I jet ski hardcore. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. <laughs> So he's like an informant in this whole plot to possibly for Joe to try and kill Carol Baskin or have somebody kill Carol Baskin. I've really gone all over the place. But he's like an informant. But any thoughts on him? Because he was, it said businessman under his name a lot. And I didn't trust that. I I don't know. No, I didn't really. And keep in mind, I binge watched all of these because I was a slacker and I only watched like two episodes at first. And then so I had to watch like five of them to get, you know, to finish. It's a lot to take in. It was a lot. And so, yeah, so I'm kind of like still processing it all. I really just finished watching it uh, today, this afternoon. No, I didn't really. He didn't really stick out to me. I didn't even notice him on the jet ski riding in. Oh, I'm going to send you like a gif of that because there's just nothing like for no reason, Mandy, no reason at all. They're like, we have 15 seconds. What do we do? And he was like, I can jet ski for you. (laughs) Is that what you want? And he's like all of us when we come out of quarantine, I think, just like pedal to the metal going as fast as he can. Nothing is out there. He just needs his freedom and he needs his water and he needs his 15 seconds of fame. He got it, Mandy. He got it. Do you have anybody or anything you want to talk about with this? Because I mean, the, I don't know how you so, recap. There this. really is so many things. I know. I guess one of my favorite things about the whole the whole entire thing was just how random everything was, and how just when yes. you thought like, okay, this is like a crazy story about like people feuding in the tiger world, and then you're like, oh, but wait, <sighs> then this guy also makes country music albums, and then <gasps> like. <laughs> Can we talk about that? Because that is the highlight to me. You cannot talk about Joe Exotic without talking about Joe Exotic music videos. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) I don't want to sing them because I don't want to get sued. And my voice isn't as good as Joe Exotic's, which it's not even his actual voice. Another person sang those songs. Really? Yep. Mm -hmm. Another whole band. And they're trying to get a record deal now because people did listen and were like, his voice is pretty good. Okay, I was just actually and about to say him. that. I was going to say that I am ashamed to admit that I thought it was good. But now if it's not even him, then I don't feel ashamed. If it was like someone else, then. <laughs> I hope he wrote those songs, though, because there's one line where he talks about someone being the love of his life and like a wind in his eye. And that is like <laughs> a miserable thing if you've ever had wind hit you directly in the eye. So I was like, I don't think that's what you're trying to say here, buddy. But... <laughs> It very well could be. And there's music videos for everything. And he does the same thing my husband does whenever he like makes a joke or anything. Like it's very literal. So if he says like, today I'm doing the dishes, 
you're washing the dishes. There's just no, you can't like imagine it. You have to see step by step. It's like, it's a step by step song. Yeah. Literally, <laughs> just he lays out the entire thing. Oh, I love the music videos. But you know what other music video is crazy? Remember Carol Baskin's one Feeding about- Feeding the tigers. I <laughs> loved it so much. When she held her husband's hand and they even showed the guy that did the documentary and he was like, what on earth is going on? <laughs> I want to know everything about the lady that sang that song because that was magical. Like you think that it's an SNL sketch at that point. You're like, nobody paid a person to do this. But that lady's laughing all the way to the bank, too. Yeah. (laughs) It's so, so great. It really is. And there's so much because it happened over, what, seven episodes. So there's like no way you could even I couldn't even recall like some of my favorite things. There were so many moments that I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. This is golden. And like this is terrible of me to say, but oh, my gosh, the, Travis's funeral when he when Joe <gasps> was up there talking, I was like, surely this is not like, <laughs> like surely you're not talking about your husband rubbing his gold nuggets in your face. <laughs> With his mother one foot away. At his funeral. Oh, my gosh. That was so terrible. But you can see, like, I don't know. Maybe it's a Florida thing. But I feel like everyone knows some of these characters to some degree. Not to Joe Exotic degree. But you feel like you've seen these people in and out of the Florida Georgia line. Oh, I've definitely seen these people. I've definitely seen these people. I don't know. So... Oh, my goodness. So if you haven't watched it, I don't know how you even sat through that because that has to be the most confusing thing you've ever sat through. (laughs) But you should watch it. It's a very good – Netflix knew what we needed right now. Yeah. Netflix definitely knew what we needed. I know. Well, we need something else soon because the the newness is wearing off of Tiger King and I'm ready for the next – I'm ready for the next thing. I know. We did Love is Blind. That was like a hit across America. Now Tiger King. And you just can't even imagine what's going to come next. You know what's going to happen. It'll happen when we least expect it. And my goodness, I hope nobody else pretends to be in love with a tiger because I don't think I can take that anymore. (laughs) That was too much for me. I thought that was going to be the next wedding, that he was going to marry a tiger. I just didn't know anymore. So, all right, Mandy. Well, I think we've covered that to here to – we saw a tiger and tiger saw us. Yep. I think we've done enough damage here this week. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, before we go, we're going to play a promo for our friend Steven Pacheco with uh, Trace Evidence. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, which you probably have because it's insanely popular and really well done, then make sure you check out that at the end of the episode. All right. Sounds great. We will see you guys next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. This is Stephen Pacheco, the host of Trace Evidence, a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders, disappearances, and everything in between. Trace Evidence takes a deep dive into unsolved cases with the hope of bringing attention to lesser-known stories while also examining some of the world's most renowned unsolved crimes. Each week, I examine a new case bringing the victim to the forefront. I discuss the background, the crime, and the subsequent investigation, followed by an analysis of some of the most popular theories. So if you've got a mind for the unsolved, an interest in true crime, or you just want to try and help discover the truth, Trace Evidence is the podcast for you. You can find Trace Evidence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you listen to podcasts.
Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.